Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Surface Pro gives you the power you need when you're out and about. It has a super fast processor and all-day battery life so that you can play up to 13 and a half hours of video without needing to charge. It's light enough to take anywhere and works with your iPhone, so it's synced with your life. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon with a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience. Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you are currently wearing. In addition to looking great and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities so that they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they are shipped right to your door. And if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. By the way, it's not just underwear over at the Mack Weldon clothing empire. It's T-shirts. I love the Mack Weldon T-shirts. They fit great. They look good under a dress shirt. They look good on their own. If you're just like gun show, time to to show my tattoos to the world. However you want to roll with Mack Weldon, they'll roll with you. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase by using promo code WATCH. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm Netter at TheRinger.com. As you can tell, I am not screaming E-A-G-L-E-S. I've chilled out. Maybe that's because Andy's not here. I'm sorry. Andy will be back on Thursday. We do have some Andy on the pod today, but today I'm actually really happy. I was joined by Allison Herman. Allison is obviously The Ringer's TV critic. She has a great piece on The Ringer today. I highly recommend you check it out about Jimmy Fallon his dipping numbers, and the state of late night. And, you know, Andy and I don't often talk about late night television, but we do talk a lot about television as a water cooler that we all gather around and exchange ideas and talk. You know, we look for these monocultural events, and maybe nothing represents the monoculture more than late night. We used to go to late night, and, you know, you would get some amusing anecdotes, some funny jokes about celebrity stuff, whatever was happening in the headlines. Maybe there was, like, a funny local news story. Jay Leno would make make you laugh about it. Dave Letterman would be sarcastic. Things have changed, though. Fallon came through, and for the last few years of the Obama administration, seemed kind of like the perfect late-night host for the way that the internet was changing culture. It was viral. He had fun stunts and game show bits, and it just made a lot of sense. But then, obviously, things have changed over the last couple of years, and they've changed in late-night. And I think that people are obviously going to late-night to see the conversation that they're having in their lives reflected on late night television. And that's where Stephen Colbert has come in. That's where Jimmy Kimmel has come in. Obviously, John Oliver has done a lot of that for years on HBO. And Jimmy Fallon is left trying to adjust what was a very successful formula for a new world. So I talked to Allison about her piece. It's an excellent piece about Fallon. She watched all of Fallon and all of Colbert for a week and wrote about the different things the two television hosts are doing. She also talked to me a little bit about the new HBO show Here and Now from Alan Ball starring Holly Hunter and Tim Robbins. Then later in the show, Andy talked to uh, a couple members of Franz Ferdinand. Awesome band. They are back with a new album called Always Ascending. He talked to Alex and a couple of the guys from the band just about the long road it's been since Take Me Out. And now they're back and the record's great. So check out that interview with Andy. By the way, if you are trying to bone up on Oscar stuff, I have a podcast recommendation for you. Please listen to Sean Fennessy's The Big Picture. It's on channel 33, so just subscribe there. Check out Sean's interviews with the director. He's talked pretty much to everybody who's relevant in the director race, in, in a lot of the races for the Oscars. So you'll learn a lot about a lot of the movies. Greta Gerwig talked to him. Paul Thomas Anderson, Sean spoke with on Bill's Pod. Uh, he's really spoken to a lot of the most interesting filmmakers working today, and it, it's it's one of my favorite podcasts. So please check out The Big Picture with Sean Fennessy. I'm joined by Allison Herman, later Andy with Franz Ferdinand. We'll be back on Thursday to talk about Berlin, Babylon, and Altered Carbon. Okay, so we're joined by Allison Herman from The Ringer. Allison, obviously, is uh, our TV critic. And she I was going to have her on to talk about Here and Now and some of the other shows that Andy and I maybe aren't talking about. But Allison has this awesome piece up today about Jimmy Fallon. I do. Thank you for having me also. <laughs> it's great to have you back. And we usually don't talk a lot about Late Night on this pod, but it is a really cool piece because you really identify, I think, something that 
uh, we do talk a lot about, which is like the monoculture and this idea that like Jimmy Fallon was for a, a few years there, uh, America's buddy that they would come check out either at night or the next day on YouTube. And that was sort of one of the keys to success is his ability to like shoot this stuff out virally. And so that you didn't have to have like this 1130 PM appointment with Jimmy Fallon. You could watch it the next day on all, all sorts of blogs and that he found this way to be amusing or funny to almost everyone. Now, even me, if you and I didn't find it funny, like my mom liked it. You know what I mean? Like moms, dads, other people were just like, good stuff. Celebrities, they're just like us, you know? Exactly. And even when last year in the election, Colbert started at the Late Show in late 2015, and for the first few months he kind of struggled. And even during 2016, when people started to really take notice of his renewed political angle, Mm -hmm. when he did the live convention shows, what I was sort of prepared for was like, okay, maybe Colbert isn't going to be number one in the ratings ever. I sort of assumed that the political angle wasn't going to be a populist angle, but at least he's settled into a specific enough thing so we can all rally around him and he can be the critical favorite to Fallon's mass favorite. And I think one of the fascinating things that's happened in the last year is that Fallon has taken a real ratings hit, which I was sort of shocked by. I kind of assumed that our general TV audience still has an appetite for the apolitical, very genial, very broad-based appeal. He's yeah. very careful not to alienate everybody. and Or when, anybody. Or anybody, <laughs> yeah. to a fault, yeah, which yeah. is exactly why he got in trouble. And yet Colbert has emerged not just as the favorite of coastal elites like us, but he currently leads in the ratings not even by a razor's edge. He regularly beats Fallon by at least half a million viewers, which is really stunning to me. And that's different also because I think that there was an element of – I I agree with you. I thought maybe, you know, this is the kind of thing that matters to people who spend a lot of time online. But for the people who are just like, I'm going to watch something for 20 minutes before I go to bed – it was going to be like Leno, where it was just going to be like it appealed to the most amount of people and caused them the least amount of distress. But we're obviously living in a time when the monoculture has become this conversation about our political social life, you know, and and that to have Fallon kind of exist outside of that, it's not offering people a respite. It's actually sounding out of touch, right? Absolutely. Although one thing I did discover, so for this piece, I watched a full week of all the episodes of both uh, Fallon and Colbert, which, full disclosure, as a millennial watching full episodes of late night shows, <laughs> is not something I do very often. It yeah. is obviously part of my job when there's a breakout monologue or a sketch or whatever. I check in with those if there's a breakout interview. But I don't really, like, sit down at 11.30 and watch a full hour. Right. because Just I chamomile, you know, <laughs> just excited to see what the opening Drink monologue. Drink my Metamucil. Yeah, right, Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, so I actually did that, and I think everyone by now is very familiar with the Fallon is uncomfortable with politics. Colbert knows how to do topical monologues that go on for minutes at a time, and he's actively enthusiastic with and engaged in, and it clearly comes very naturally to him. The thing that I was sort of surprised by is that I sort of found as a viewer that Fallon's insubstantial nature or lack of assertive personality behind general positivity and amicability really goes beyond just I don't like talking about politics. It's also like these games are not actual that he specializes in and he's really built his name on are not real conversations. Yeah. I found that I enjoyed Colbert even just as a apolitical interviewer talking to someone like Beanie Feldstein and being like, hey, I really loved your movie. Not just I loved your movie, but I loved your movie for this specific reason. It resonated with me because I'm Catholic, because I love the coming of age story, because I thought your performance was great. And Fallon notoriously just gives these very generic pronouncements of I love this person. They're the best without really, you know, backing that up or allowing the guests to bring a real figment of their personality. And that's something you sort of get at in your piece is you talk about how Fallon in its first iteration and sort of what it really started to because I remember when Fallon first started the almost the dominating conversation was like man the music's really good it's mm-hmm. got the roots and like the program like the music programming is good and it's almost like appointment viewing it be- became like you know if somebody was on Fallon they might bring a special guest out or they might just do something different and then increasingly it became he was learning from everything from like college humor videos to what was like successful about parts of the office and realizing that you could capture a certain gamified virality to like segments and that it was a new way to use famous people rather than just plug your movie, tell me an amusing anecdote and then we'll banter, 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 and then we'll be out of here. And to be fair, that is a genuinely innovative addition to a very staid and 
archaic format. There's really no reason why these uh, hour-long shows really need to exist as they still do, and they still pull out the physical cards, and it really is old-fashioned, and I think Fallon does deserve a lot of credit for building a new audience, bringing this to a group that doesn't typically pay attention to late night as a genre. I just think it's interesting that over time, you know, Fallon became the young person. He was the first of this sort of new wave of late night hosts. He arrived in 2014. And then then you got Seth Meyers. Then you got Colbert. Then you got Corden. Yeah. He was like the leader of that vanguard. And when he shows up, it's, oh, this young, fresh face. He's revolutionizing this format. He's new. You know, maybe there were some malcontents who didn't really like what he was doing. But it was a different time. I don't think people were as, like, consumed with what's the responsibility of a late-night talk show host or whatever, right? Exactly. And he came across as new and fresh. And then now, you know, Colbert is literally older than him. He plays a much—he's on CBS, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I think um, Fallon still maintains a lead among younger viewers, which is an important distinction to make, both for advertisers and just in Mm -hmm. general and in fairness to him. But, you know, Colbert is this old-school, slightly gray-haired, classic showman, and yet he somehow seems almost— not more youthful, but more in touch with the zeitgeist engaged. and what we yeah. want from late night hosts. Certainly right now. more engaged. You know, the f- interesting thing about Fallon too is I, I I hadn't really thought about this until I can't remember what YouTube deep dive I was on, but I was in, you just like sort of messing around and you'll come across like these endless junket videos and uh, random websites you've never heard of getting you know f- three minutes with Harrison Ford and Brian Gosling for uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Every single one of these people, every single one of these videos now is almost to a T, has some bit. It's like, we have to play Never Have I Ever, or we have to play, like, Would You Rather, or we have to play, like, you know, Wired has people, like, reading their Google results. And it's like, everything has been kind of, they have saw from Fallon, like, man, if you only get five minutes with this person, do you want to just ask them the same questions everybody's going to ask them? Or do you do 73 questions, like Vogue, or do you do these Vanity things? Vanity Fair, yeah. stuffing coins up your nose, like exactly. Michael Shannon. Yeah. So it's like, I think that what happened was... Fallon was innovative. A lot of people copied it. And then combine that with the fact that Colbert and Kimmel, to some extent, seem more prepared for this moment. What I was going to ask you was, and, and this is this is not like a really well-proven theory, but do you think Oliver had something to do with it? Because that explosion of like everybody just taking John Oliver's monologue and then at half the blogs on the internet Monday morning being like, watch John Oliver eviscerate healthcare. <laughs> that that kind of was a... a shot back at Fallon and then Colbert has kind of perfected what Oliver was doing? I think it's The Daily Show had something to do with it. I mean, that's the thing that unites Oliver, Colbert, Samantha Bee, all these people who've really come into their own in the Trump era are all people who really built their reps, like, doing this during the Bush years. And, you know, the best sort of segment that I watched this week, and bizarrely, when you hold up Fallon's strengths, it's doing better than basically anything that he he's done in the past few days on YouTube, was Colbert had Oliver on. And he apparently did the same thing last year when he was promoting his last season. But, like, they just have a 15-minute conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's there's no bits, although later uh, Oliver did another scene to, you know, in fairness, Colbert does do, like, sure. celebrity sketches on occasion. But it's just so pleasurable to watch John Oliver be funny about Trump possibly perjuring himself or just talking about like the absurdity of the Winter Olympics as this international spectacle. And there's no hook. There's no special thing. It's just these two people who are natural peers. Obviously, Oliver's on HBO so he can get a little more granular. He doesn't have to have guests on. He doesn't need to do the promotional duties. But they definitely seem more stylistically at each other's level than Colbert is to Fallon. Yeah. Which was really fascinating. So let me ask you this. Does the world need to change for Fallon to regain his popularity or does Pat Fallon have to change? So maybe the most painful thing that I had to watch during all of this was Fallon's most overt attempt to really change with the times, which was he did a live show after the Super Bowl, which is in many ways like exactly what Fallon should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's after this like famously, you know, kind of apolitical spectacle that's all about consumerism. He's got Timberlake, who he's already Timberlake. got charisma with. Yeah, exactly. This is us. Like he's really in his element. And then he decided to do this bit for at this theater in Minneapolis where he was in character as Bob Dylan. The camera went black and white, and he did this uh, updated cover of Times They Are a Change In with topical lyrics about Me Too and fake news. And it was so glib and 
uninformed and shallow and literally painful to watch. I was just like, look, like, do what you're good at. I can respect that. I may not, you know, may not be my personal preference, yeah. but I would much rather watch you like play a silly game of taboo with Rachel Brosnahan than have you try to be something that you're organically not. So I do think there's not really a better path forward except for Fallon to just keep doing what he's doing and wait for the inclination to change or, you know, I don't think things are anywhere near this bad, but NBC could obviously change personnel at some point and maybe bump Seth Meyers up or something. I personally would trade uh, Jimmy Fallon being the most popular talk show host for the next 50 years if we could have a better world. (laughs) Like, if we wanted to just go (laughs) back. Can we go back? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) If we never had to worry about politics and we didn't need someone to address those anxieties, that would would probably be speak to a better world. Uh, Let's just quickly talk about um, here and now, because that's something that I, we had written down on like our slip of, you know, our schedule of shows that we wanted to talk about. And I completely forgot that it was debuting this weekend, this, this past (laughs) Sunday, uh, last night. It's the new show from Alan Ball on HBO. It is the prestige drama on HBO. We're supposed to make this a national event, um, or we used to. How is it? And it just kind of trailed off, right? Yeah. I think HBO uh, did not really put their full muscle behind this promotionally. I think that the reasoning behind that becomes very clear when you watch the first few episodes. As you guys have talked about on the show, like HBO has a very limited amount of real estate that usually results in them being very finicky and very particular about what they actually Mm -hmm. allow on their airwaves. And I think it's worth noting that the hour-long slot in February is what launched Big Little Lies last year and is bookmarked for next year for Meryl Streep to destroy us all. Yes, right. Like this is a big spot. We expect big things. I also think it's worth noting that this show, the lead actress on this show is Holly Hunter, who is a national treasure, who is, in my opinion, just snubbed for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. You know, there's a lot of things also going the, for the show. the person who created the show produced two of the most iconic HBO shows of the last 15 years, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I like, I think Six Feet Under is genuinely great. I think True Blood is superlative trash. Yes. I still revisit it. And it, it still ran me for a lot seven seasons. Yeah. It ran for seven seasons. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons that a show like this should be good. I will actually say I enjoyed this a lot. Most of the time when I recommend that uh, our site's readers and your listeners check out a show, it's because it's objectively good. That is not the case here, but it is bad in a way that is so fascinating to watch. And it's just, how did this happen? What is the show going for? To backtrack, like the actual basic premise of the show is it's about a wealthy mostly white family in Portland. The matriarch is Holly Hunter. The dad, played by Tim Robbins, is a philosophy professor mm-hmm. who's going through some late-in-life angst. Three of their four children are adopted from conflict-ridden countries, one's from Colombia, one's from Liberia, one's from Vietnam, and then they have a biological daughter who is played by uh, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's daughter. Oh. Sosie Bacon. And, you know... A significant part of the show is basically like an insular, affluent family drama in the vein of Transparent or even like This Is Us. There's a little bit of schmaltz. There's a little bit of real bite. I think the best parts of the show are what are sort of the subtle, weird dynamics that emerge among these family members, like the older siblings, Duke, who's adopted from Vietnam, and Ashley, who's from Liberia – have this sort of bond that's like we are the visibly non-white members of the family. We feel like we're mascots for our parents' tolerance. Like we got treated differently, whereas the actually white or just white passing younger kids didn't. Like that strain of conflict is really rich. And I think what Holly Hunter does is this kind of self-absorbed white woman who thinks she's the best and right. uh, kindest person in the world is great. But the weird twist <laughs> is that uh, Ramon, who's the one from Columbia, starts getting these bizarre visions involving the number 1111. There's a hint of something supernatural. They involve other characters on the show. Something is happening, but the show cultivates almost no sense of suspense about mm-hmm. like where this is going, what this thing is. And then it just begs this really obvious question of like, why are rich people problems about like, which of our millionaire friends can donate to my vanity nonprofit? Why what is, is that, that doing? Yeah, right alongside this bigger, almost sensate-esque, like something bigger is it's going on. It's connecting us all. Yes, right. exactly. Okay. And it's such an or inorganic fusion that I will probably keep watching if only to find out, like, where is this going? What are you trying <laughs> And to how do long here? can they afford to – I mean, Andy and I talk about this all the time where, for better or for worse, 
TV shows tend to show you their cards pretty early. I mean, even something as um, twisty as dark, you're you're aware that every you you learn that every two or three episodes the game is going to change completely in that show. You know what I mean? Or dark does a very good job of establishing what the questions are supposed to be asking yes, is. Yeah. It's like, where did this person go? Why did this person commit suicide? How did this strange thing happen? What's going on right. here? The fascinating thing about here and now is like there are the sort of suspenseful questions of who's the person appearing in Ramon's dreams? Why is he seeing this number everywhere? What's the question of that? But then it just kind of forgets about them for mm-hmm. like long stretches at a time. And then you focus on Does it feel like it was the the hook of that, like the suspenseful hook is grafted onto just a pilot about like affluent Portland people with Almost. adopted kids. But like it's clearly, you know, I think the sort of spiel that he must have used is it's like the six feet under family drama plus the True Blood sure. Supernatural yeah. book. And it's almost, you know, it has to be there for a reason because I think, you know, it very easily could be cut down to a like razor sharp half hour show that's like a satire of white liberalism mm-hmm. in a city like Portland. And part of what the show is going for is clearly some statement about what it means to live in this diverse but chaotic world. Like, um, there are a lot of speeches to that effect. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, is, it's a very self-consciously diverse cast. Like, when Ramon starts going to therapy, his therapist is Muslim and the therapist's child is genderqueer. Like, there's a lot of, like, stuff. we want this yeah. to be inclusive. We're clearly interested in the question of what it means to think of yourself as a generally upstanding, politically left-leaning citizen. But then there's just this wild card that's like, it has to be here for a reason because there's a very good version of the show that exists without this, but I just have no idea what that is. Okay. So I'm, I will be watching. I will alert you if, yes. if something crazy Page happens. me if, if we ever find out what's up with Ramon's visions. All right, Allison Herman's piece on Jimmy Fallon is avail- is up on TheRinger.com now. You should definitely check it out. It sounds like only Allison will be watching here and now, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Showtime's hit series, Homeland. The show with its finger on the pulse returns for a new season starring Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin. The crisis in Washington heats up after the attempted assassination of President Keene. And now, as the ultimate outsider, Carrie Matheson must save a government going off the rails while Saul fights to stop a resistance movement from exploding into violence. Abuses of power, civil unrest, agents and double agents. Isolated from the White House and the CIA, Carrie finds herself with few resources and many disbelievers as she tries to prove that not all conspiracies are theories. Homeland has returned. It's on Sundays at 9. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. Thanks to Allison Herman. You can check out her article on TheRinger.com on Jimmy Fallon and all of her television stuff. It's great. Now Andy's got an interview with the members of France Ferdinand. Their new album, Always Ascending, is out now. We'll be back on Thursday. Take care. And now in the studio, I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Alex and Bob from France Ferdinand. New album, Always Ascending, is out February 8th, February 9th, 2018. Some Unexpected numbers thrown in there. I apologize for that. We're recording this a little early. It's December now. Yes. So hopefully the world will still exist in February. Yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. crossed eh? yeah. It's kind of a nice bet by you guys that it will, right? It's a nice one, sorry. Bet that right. the world will still do you, exist. Do you have doubts? As increasingly. Well, yeah. What could possibly lead to that happening? No idea. Although you have been in America for a few days now, <laughs> yes. and maybe you're starting to come around yeah, to my way of thinking. Like there's some crazy character that could lead us to... Doom and destruction. But we're not focusing on that. We'll talk about the new album, which is really great. I really love listening to it. Thanks. Um, And I do want to talk about the new album, but I also did want to do a little memory lane strolling, if you guys Mm. don't mind, because um, the last time we sat together was 13 years ago. Our relationship has just become a bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition. (laughs) Um, When I had the great pleasure of writing about you guys for, I'm going to show you just to take you back, um, this cover story for Spin. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? And one of my favorite things about the story was obviously like it was right on the heels of a big crashing of America with Take Me Out and um, the crowds were getting bigger and the smiles on the faces of the record executives were getting broader. Um, And you were both, the whole band was still nice enough to get into my um, decrepit Volkswagen in Philadelphia and drive to the Mütter Museum. Yeah, that's right. Which um, you, 
apparently thought I was saying the Motor Museum. Yeah, I thought it was yeah, going to yeah, be a yeah, yeah, car, car museum. Yeah. Do you remember what actually is in that <laughs> yeah, museum? I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the biggest um, colon in medical history. <laughs> exactly right. I, I will never forget yeah. that. It <laughs> makes a great impression. But you were very good sports about that. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Was, it was an incredible... I was quite, quite, quite squeamish, squeamish so I don't think I saw much of the museum. Yeah. I think I hung around in the entrance way. But... Well, in the entrance way, I believe you can still, if you open some drawers, you can see like... I, I wasn't opening any Fingernails drawers. or... No, none no. of that. <laughs> I, I guess this, and this is sort of a general way to begin, but it was such an exciting time and it was a while ago. What are your memories of that time now, now that we're you're on the promotional cycle in America for this new album? Um, what was it like doing it the first time in hindsight, if it's possible to do that kind of time travel gymnastics? Yeah, I, I, I guess it, it, it's, it's intensely overwhelming when you're in the middle of that uh, because everything's new. Um, you haven't been back home for a long, long time. And... Do you know what's what's weird is actually talking about yourself for long periods of time. It's it's the first time in my life I'd ever had to do that, and that's yeah. actually quite disorientating, you know, and uh, not a good thing for your mental health. I don't think. I don't think anybody should talk about themselves that much. And uh, it, it it that that's what I found weirdest at that time when doing promo trips. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't any sense of. It was ever going to end as well. So right. it was just kind of like, is this what happens now? Is this what is, we do? Is this my life? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, it's funny you mention that because the, the piece that, that ran in spin um, ended with a quote from Alex, and I wanted to share the quote with you oh, because yes. it actually allows for some interesting follow-up. Yeah. You said, um, all of this is like having a torpedo launched. You've planned the trajectory. You're standing on it. You know where it's going to go. You can't steer it for a while, but you know where it's going to end up. And the thing is, it's magic fun riding it. First of all, great quote. <laughs> right, Thank okay, you for making yeah. my job easier. Right, yeah, but second, yeah, yeah, yeah. you said you knew where it was going to end up. So were yeah, you right? Where did it end explosion. up? <laughs> huge explosion, yes. <laughs> with, with, with casualties <laughs> and <laughs> limbs flying everywhere, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, it did feel like that at the time. It, it really, really did. Like, like it, it had gone off and there was absolutely nothing we could do to, to steer where it was going. Um, and, and I guess when you're in a situation like that, you you either kind of try and fight it or just enjoy the ride, which is pretty much what we were doing at that time. Yeah. It, it also struck me that um, there was some, in retrospect, some of the machinery that, that, that the band was caught up in and the single was certainly caught up in was sort of the last vestiges of the old record industry yes. mm-hmm. machinery. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, back yeah. of 2004, and I don't think we knew it at the time. We knew things were changing, but yeah, yeah. I feel like the last two indie rock singles to like go to go big in this country came that year. It was Take Me Out and Float On by oh, Modest yes. Mouse. Yeah, yeah, sure. And there was still, in this article I wrote, there was still references to MTV plays, you know, and Tower Records in stores and just yeah, these things yeah, that used yeah, to yeah. be the, that used to be what we did. That was what, the life, yeah. That yes, was yeah. how it worked. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like you had an interesting trajectory because you got that the last sort of chemtrails of that yes. and then had to make do in a changed world and continue to make do it and succeed yeah. in a changed world. It, it does feel very, very different. But it, um, it feels different every time we release an album. So it's like, yes. you know, every two or three years, you know, you go, you know, the record company, okay, okay, things are a bit different now. You know, oh, it's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, oh what's, not, what's new this time? Right. So it's like you've left and then they're like, here's the situation on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah do yeah. the faces change as well and the expressions? No, is it like, well, uh, no, no. The direness of the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like, like Domino is, is a remarkably robust, you know, like yeah. touch wood, you know, but the... Yeah, they, they, I think because they're a bit smaller, they're maybe a little bit more adaptable than some of the, the major labels are. Um, yeah, I, I remember when it did start changing, because we were doing stuff with Epic at that time mm-hmm. in the States. Yes, they um, were the ones high-fiving at the Tower Records in right, store, okay, the Virgin yes. Megastore, which yeah, are words yeah. that don't even go together anymore. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I did find that, that culture very different from the, uh, the the culture at Domino. Uh, lots of sports references that I didn't understand at all. Like, like, you know, <laughs> well, you're in the right place for that. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, like we're, we're going we're gonna to knock this single out of the park. Oh, right, Howie, that's great. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> also possible because only home runs leave the park. And oh, yet okay, you were clearly right? with the wrong, right. <laughs> the wrong executives, <laughs> only, but they meant your single. I meant right, like in a right. baseball. Yeah, uh, okay. only a home run leaves the park. Yeah, okay. if you I hit thought, the ball out of the park. I thought a home run was like a rounder. 
Well, yeah. Is that a cricket reference? Uh, no, it's rounders reference. Oh, my God. This, this interview's <laughs> over. This is falling apart. <laughs> Communication breakdown. Well, no, like if you hit it out of the park, then you can run around the bases. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. You don't automatically get a home run for hitting it out of the park. You do, but you still have to, but then you have to but do you the, actually the, have the pageantry. To what if it, what you if do. It, what wow. if it stays in the park, but you still manage to run around all the bases? A home run, but more, but less, uh, but more rare. Okay, right. And right. this has been another edition of Andy Explains Baseball <laughs> to British citizens. <laughs> We're done, right? That's what we, that's what we do on the show. Um, yeah, you mentioned, though, the, the, the limbs and explosions that could have happened on the rocket ship. But I feel like that clearly didn't happen. You have an excellent new record uh, many years on. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered, in retrospect, what you think um, prepared you for surviving that. And I, I wonder, to some degree, um, you know, the band didn't begin with a sort of cold corporate calculation. I, I wrote yeah. a lot in the piece about your early days, you know, playing, there was a show in the prison that a lot of people remembered yes, and yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of an yeah, arts yeah. coming from more of an artistic scene. Yes. But also, Alex, you had background seeing this happen to yeah. friends in, in Glasgow and not this specifically, but seeing friends form bands, take off and then have yes. their own experiences. Yeah. And also like being a little older as well. Uh, um, I, I always have this, I subscribe to that theory that if you, uh, if you have some success it puts your development into suspended animation. Mm-hmm. So if you have success at the age of 16, you remain 16 for the rest of your life. And, With and all that entails. Yeah, yes, exactly. Right. And for me, it was 32. and that, that. Although according to my article, it was 29. Oh, right, okay. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <then. laughs> Although, to, to, in my own defense, I referred yeah. to you as not naive, I think. There were a couple of terms, not a novice, I said. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's imagine definitely. thinking 32 is over the hill. I don't well, know that's... It, it's interesting at the time uh, that that whole thing happened because right at the beginning when our album came out, our manager and the guy that was doing our press in in London sort of said, look, the enemy won't write about you, but if you're over 30, they're not going to cover you. <laughs> Do you mind if we lie about your age on the press release? And I was like, ah. Oh, Damn, I don't, whatever, yeah, yeah, just do yeah. it. There were so many things happening. And then I just ended up in this total nightmare of like, like <laughs> having to lie about this. And doing the, the math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so embarrassing. Like, and I was just like, and and all my friends in Glasgow knew about it. It was just, just like, oh, yeah, I know. And every time I'd see them, I'd say, yes, I know, it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Right? But yeah. It seems start, crazier in retrospect. At the time, yeah. it's like, yes, it's whoever you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. But I just felt personally betrayed because I was talking to you as a fellow, <laughs> you know, 70, yeah, 70, yeah. 75 to 77 er and then right, as it turns okay. out everything we said was based on <laughs> but I feel, you're I, one of those early 70s guys I, I, it's right? like yeah, we yes, have no reference points anymore totally different oh my god yeah, yeah. Um, so let's so you mentioned that that it, every time it says it's a little bit different the record industry uh, beneath your feet so to speak do you feel either of you that that the changes on the ground affected you we can talk we, we could talk and we won't about how it may have affected the band commercially or, you know, the, the, in the mechanism around the band. But do you feel that the changes in the industry affected you creatively in any way? Or have you been able to keep on doing what you wanted it's to be doing? You know, one thing that, that's been interesting is like this, with uh, sort of like streaming sites and things, is, is this so-called death of the introduction. I don't mm. know, have you been following this? Like, like the, I've never heard it said that way. I like right, that a lot. Right, yeah. right. The, the, the songs have to get straight to the the biggest hook of the song. Which your new single does not. It, it does not. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> Standing astride history <laughs> saying, slow it down. <laughs> so yes, the industry may change around us and we seem to willfully ignore those trends. But yeah, um, so, so you're aware of things and I, I, I guess you've got, two ways of responding to it. It's either chasing them or just continuing to do your own thing, really. Um, can you think of anything else? I, think, that, that I, create, I, I can't or? think that's uh, creatively as any kind of impact, really. Um, as a consumer, it's great. You mm-hmm. know, the access to music nowadays as a music consumer is brilliant mm-hmm. um, and exciting. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think my two favorite formats are thriving at the moment, which is records or vinyl mm-hmm. and uh, uh, mp3s are streaming you know, I, I love that instant choice and instant access mm-hmm. if i'm curious about something like being able to hear it straight away if i'm in a conversation with somebody about a piece of music like being able to listen to it straight away that that blows my mind still i, yes, I, I love that and i like to listen to records when i'm at home so it sort of requires then. a kind of a two-track thinking i found with music because i i desperately miss 
the things sometimes. I, mm-hmm. I, I got rid of my CD collection, digitized it, which right, okay. is, which yeah, was see, a, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a mistake. My wife disagrees. Uh, <laughs> but but I realized I miss the just seeing it on the shelf and pulling it down and right. thinking about okay. it physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now you sort of have to, you can experiment and sample things, but then buying the record now feels more yes, it's, yeah, it's, it's making good. a statement. It's like a commitment. Yes, yeah, a deeper yeah, commitment. Yeah. You can, so now you can both date and get married. <laughs> yes, no, it's true though. Like, like, like with my records, that's that's the music that I really love and feel a real attachment to. But I still have my CDs and never listen to them. I've got these. Okay, you're I've making me these, feel better. I've got these shelves and shelves of CDs, and I, it, it, the music that I would choose to listen to from a CD, I always just stream it or have it digitized. Uh, but records, I listen to all the time, and like, and I love getting my records down and putting them on. I think the thing that that struck me most listening to the new your new record was um, how simple all of this can seem when you've got a great tune. Mm. Um, I read in the in the the press materials, Alex, there's a quote from you saying that the that the song the song always ascending, the lead single. Um, was futuristic and naturalistic, yeah. which I think that's good. Um, <laughs> it's very good adjectives. But also I thought, well, this sounds very much of the moment, but none of that matters that it that it does because it's just a great tune inside yes. of all the yeah, things yeah, that you did yeah. with it. And it, it was actually, I, I found it kind of moving and inspiring that it, it, mm-hmm. it can be reduced to something simple still, yeah. even though conversations about music these days uh, are often the ones that we that we almost just had about format or whatever. It's funny, that, that reminds me of a, a conversation that we were having right at the beginning when we started writing this this record, uh, when it was just the three of us after, after Nick had left and it was just Bob, Paul and I. And we were talking about songs and like the importance of a song and how it doesn't matter what you do with the sound, you've got to have good songs at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And what we set out to do before we did thought about anything about how we were going to sound, what we were trying to do with the sound and the sonic identity of the band, we sat down to write what became like a songbook, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a collection of songs. And then when you had the collection of songs, then sort of say, right, how are we going to perform these now? And that that's the point where you decide what your new sound is and that's where you try and reach for the future or create your own future. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no point trying to do that if there's no song to apply it to. And if, yeah, and if the song is good, it, it's, you can't break it. So, you know, it, it's, it's the it, it's, it's the always core be there, there right? Right? Yes. Yeah. I, I want to ask specifically about what Philippe, who produced the record, uh, oh, yeah. did to it. But I, I you mentioned... Um, and Nick, so I, I realized there were two other things, two other stray details in that profile, which right. is my, this is the spine of, of my interview, as much as the song is the spine of the, of the record. Um, one is that I referred to Nick as being prone to wander off. I said that I don't know what that came from whether he walked away in an interview Probably. but that seems weirdly prescient doesn't yeah, it yeah, because yeah, he yeah. has apparently wandered out of the band yeah. entirely yeah yeah. yeah. He, good, he yeah. would do that that's very observant actually it's, it's, it's what he was like on tour he would always sort of wander yeah. off and very easily distracted you know if, if there was a fly passing by he'd be <laughs> or if a puppet show or something <laughs> yeah. a, a shiny object <laughs> a circus was somewhere <laughs> on the edge of town yeah yeah um yeah, he, he was, and now he's he's wandered off forever. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that does change the dynamic. It can be positive. It can yeah, be negative. Yeah. How has it been for you? Well, it, it, ultimately, I think it's been a positive for us. I mean, all, you know, it's been positive for Nick as well. To I be think honest. so. Too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. endings are sad. But we yeah, have him know, here right now, and he disagrees. Sorry, go on. Uh, endings are always sad, you know, and it's like a bit of sweetness to it. Um, you know, when you've toured the world with someone for that many years and and done whatever. Uh, but um, it's an opportunity as well, you know. That's what we kind of like saw it as. Um, everything gets, everything starts again, and you have to kind of work out what your role is in the band. Everything changes. The dollar dynamics change, mm-hmm. you know. Um, which is exciting. It was an exciting thing to happen. Really. The other uh, stray detail that that really stood out to me was that I believe I didn't credit this quote, but I believe Stuart Braithwaite from Mogwai gave it to me that that your drummer Paul was the, quote the best hung man in Scotland, <laughs> and I realized I just wrote that. I don't know if we fact checked it. You know, I don't yeah, know. Maybe it's right. an indictment of magazines at uh, the time. The, the, there is a, a Polaroid that was circling around the, the Glasgow music scene at one point in the late nineties, which was pretty conclusive. <laughs> he was, oh, okay, so there yeah. was so maybe that. Yeah, fact, yeah, maybe, yeah. Do you think that was facts to spin? In Possibly. New York? Yeah, he also maybe, starred yeah. in a sex. <laughs> Sex Ed film um, at some point as well in the 90s, I guess. Yeah, okay. he was also a life model at the art school in Glasgow. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the, you know, the, the, he, it's almost like he was searching opportunities <laughs> to prove this point. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, Usually yeah. people who seek that many opportunities to prove it have something to hide, but not. Right. No, no, he was. Okay. Yeah, he finds it hard to hide. Good. There it is. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're really settling old scores here, aren't we? I wonder, I, if, I wonder if that still comes into Stuart's mind whenever he's talking to Paul. Yeah, 
Let me say, I didn't, I didn't ask. It's obviously scarred him in some way, hasn't it? I didn't yeah. ask. He volunteered, yeah. to be fair. But then you also, Alex, were in the same interview, uh, in the same piece, said that you remember, Stuart, again, for the people listening at Mogwai, from Mogwai, this is not a natural uh, uh, scene to set. You remember him at uh, the 13th note wearing yeah. a velvet jacket singing right. Del Shannon's Runaway. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. When he was in Dead Cat Motorbike. So everybody kept the receipts on everybody else. That's what <laughs> yeah, you're saying. That's true. There's nowhere to hide. It, it's funny, like, like Stuart actually had a, a a role to play in this new lineup as well because it was Stuart that introduced us to uh, Julian Corey, who's, okay. who's now joined the band. Because we were, there was a film that came out last year called Lost in France. And uh, it was kind of about Chemical Underground yes. and the, the, the scene in 90s, scene in Glasgow. And uh, uh, I was over with Stuart for a showing of the film along with uh, Emma Pollock and... Um, uh, Paul Savage from the Delgados and I sort of said to them hey we're looking for someone to join the band who in Glasgow is exciting and all of them said Julian Corey so this as a super Glasgow fanboy from the 90s who bought everything on Chemical Underground ah, pre-Spotify yeah. I mean you just had to buy yeah, it yeah yeah likewise me too from, from Yorkshire yeah. I mean Ursa Yatsura was one of my favorite bands yeah. I know you, you used to play with them a little uh, bit yeah that's right That's right. I used to drive uh, them around like I used to be their van driver yeah, I mean yeah. not on Spotify yeah. I can't find them that's, they, they, I think a few done tracks a, are they, they've done a, 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 an album recently it was, it's like a compilation album of all of their Peel sessions which is really cool there's so many good bands that, that, I mean that is the mystery that's a little bit lost. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you went backstage and drank all their rider. When I you didn't drink f- all their rider, but <laughs> you were fifteen or something. It was it, my. I was. I went to school like you know, two hundred miles away from Glasgow in yeah. Yorkshire, and they were passing by through playing Sheffield. And my school friend's uncle was their sound engineer who got us on the guest list. <laughs> it's perfect. And then we and then we went backstage and had some of their rider. I didn't want to drink their rider, particularly. You were just but thirsty. You had to. Yeah. It was there. You it's had just, to do it. Just, I mean, I would. I didn't. You know, it's, it's an Alice in Wonderland situation. Yeah. The bottle is on the table. Yeah. And look where you ended up all these years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so going back to the new record briefly, um, Philippe Zadar from Cassius and yeah. other uh, lofty production credits produced the record. Um, an exciting and I think inspired pairing. Um, how was that creatively? It was amazing. Like, like Philip's really cool. I first spoke to him. Uh, Lawrence Bell at Domino um, introduced us about five or six years ago, and uh, it was when he was working on the Beastie Boys record. We had a couple of chats on the phone, so I said, "Oh yeah, this is really cool. We should work together. It's not going to work out at the moment." And then. Uh, yeah, we were talking about producers when we were getting this record together and it was obvious we wanted to make something that was like a, a dance floor record or had like a, certainly quite a dance, large dance element to it. And we're looking to the future and the, and the sound didn't want to have anything that sounded like anything we'd done before. And Philippe seemed like the obvious choice. He mm-hmm. seemed like we sat and listened to all of his productions. Like, man, it sounds amazing. So sent him a text and he was up for it. And uh, have you met Philippe before? Never, no. Right, he's he's quite a character. He's extremely French, uh, quite gregarious, a big character, um, a lot of enthusiasm and, and energy as well. He, he's like, I think everybody has one of those kind of friends in a social circle who, when they are part of a night out, crazier stuff happens than normal. Yes. You, you know, that yes. one guy that like somebody ends up breaking an ankle. Or, and and, as, know, like, and like, as we get older, we still need to keep that guy in the phone because <laughs> yes. you still sometimes need that yeah, exactly, release exactly. valve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that is Philippe. He is that character in every part of his life and <laughs> in the studio as well. But it's, it's great having something like that in the studio. Those people that push you to do something beyond what you would normally do and, and kind of go a bit crazy and, and but. Yeah. So basically, you hire the guy who says, "Now we do shots." That's the guy, and you bring him <laughs> into your. Literally did yeah, yeah. Like, 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 yeah, every he, day at six p.m. He has a what's it? What's a whiskey sour. Whiskey sour. Like he he makes up whiskey sour. Like he's a mixer in every sense. Like like like, uh, like, like mixes records, <laughs> yeah. mixes his DJ, has, and mixes yes. the best whiskey sour I've ever had in my 6 life. Six p.m. You know? It's a whiskey sour and one single cigarette. That's <laughs> that's class, but also a little bit of discretion. I respect that. <laughs> I, I I just feel like with with yeah. with bands, which and I can say this from the outside, so you feel free to tell me if I'm being ridiculous, but you understand why you make the first record. There's a need to make the second record and then the third record just to go along with the timeline and the story that people on my side of the ball always like to craft. (laughs) Any record after that, I feel like you need a reason to do it. Um, Mm. And one of the reasons that I think this album sounds so exciting and and it's it's backed up by the way you're talking about it is that there was a real decision-making. I mean, you had some good songs, but you knew you wanted a dance sound. You wanted a certain type of record. And so the, the, the abilities of the players were put in that direction, right? As opposed to 
there's a blank slate in the release schedule or in my personal yes, calendar. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, time yeah, to make yeah, a record. Yeah. I mean, there, there was no release schedule. So we didn't even know if there was going to be a band or whatever. It was just we had to decide to do it. But there were a lot of puppet shows that year. It was yeah, yeah. very distracting. <laughs> And circuses, yeah, yeah, very distracting. Um, I, I think when we came to make this record, we decided that we had to like sort of break up our patterns uh, of creativity and, and look to um, push ourselves in ways that we hadn't before and uh, try and make us right. Uh, using methodologies that we hadn't before, uh, so the ways that we approached lyric writing, music writing, just because when you've been doing anything for a, a long period of time, you find yourself uh, repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. When you repeat yourself, then you you do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Nick's leaving was actually a great gift in that sense mm -hmm. because it immediately shook everything up. Mm -hmm. We weren't The roles weren't the same anymore, and it meant that you could try and force yourself to do things like you hadn't before. And a lot of lyric writing was different. You know, we, mm -hmm. we were sort of creating fictional characters to write from. Um, uh, even so, like playing, using lyrics like a sort of game. Yeah, yeah, which we had done before uh, to, to an extent, but I guess we embraced it more this time. Another thing was uh, you bought a piano in late 2015, mm. which, um, so you were kind of enamored with that. So a lot of writing took place around a piano rather than a guitar, which changes things. I wanted to ask about a specific song on the album, Huck and Jim. Oh, yeah. Uh, where there's a refrain, and I may, if I misheard it, we can just edit this out of the podcast sure, right, entirely. Right. But I believe the protagonist of the song, maybe it's, it's you, Alex, is saying, um, talking about coming to America and telling yeah. everyone about the National Health Service. <laughs> yes. Here's your chance. Right. Okay. Here we are. <laughs> yes. We, I, we I, have I, microphones. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been looking. Well, that, that, that song started, the, the, the chorus of the song. Um, the music came first, and uh, it just sounded so much like, well, to our ears, like American slacker rock or something like that. It sounded like uh, Silver Jews or Pavement or mm -hmm. Weezer or something like that. It doesn't really, because it's us playing it, so we're never going to really be to totally right. like that. But it was, it was the most in that direction we've ever been. And so I was kind of taking the piss out of myself a little bit, or the band, and kind of saying, we're going to America, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like, and, uh, and, and having a bit of a laugh as I did it. Then, but then, you know when you're having a laugh, sometimes it can like switch, and suddenly like you're having a joke, and it, it becomes a little more serious, because I was thinking like, if I was going to go to America at that particular time in 2016, pretty much exactly a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a very happy time in America. Oh, Let me tell was, you, I was it? here, yeah, it was yeah. just laughs. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, so, yeah. so joyous. And... What would I talk about if I got to America? And at, at that time, the, the dominant news story was um, the dismantling of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And uh, that put the National Health Service in my mind as well, which, was also, which is also being dismantled kind of in a, in a more sinister way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's being done by the back door. It's being sold off to companies like Virgin Healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it's being privatized. They went from megastores to healthcare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. You they couldn't really sell saw... records anymore. You had to sell pills. It's kind of brilliant. You saw which service. way the winds yeah, were yeah. blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. And, and the NHS, it's, it saved my life three or four times. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm an asthmatic. I was a, a wheezy kid. Ended up in the back of a, an ambulance going to hospital. And I, I love it. I love those doctors, those people that give up their lives to do it. But I also love the fact that it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel it's a measure of civilization, the fact that you care for your sick. Yeah. You look after your sick. It's, and so I want to say, like, yes, the NHS has been wonderful. It saved my life. Look after your sick. It's a wonderful thing. You, you, there, are even, there are even some religions that I believe suggest <laughs> that. I, I'm, not, I'm not a religious man. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and finally, uh, a couple of years into this into this band, um, with this great record about to come out, um, what keeps you excited about it? Because I know, um, even as far back as that story, a few years ago, Alex, you had just done those food columns. Oh, right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I know that you guys are men of the world who have other interests and things that you like to do and other things that inspire you. What keeps you interested in rock and roll? As opposed to going to do something else. I don't, it's, it's, it's always been my thing. It's always just yeah. been what I do since um, I was about 14. And I'm not suggesting you stop. I was just <laughs> curious what... <laughs> yeah. I think you should stop. Yeah. What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just quite interested in, in doing what I do well, mm. as well as I can. And, I, and, I, and every year, every album, whatever, I enjoy playing uh, the bass more, and mm. I understand more about music, and I enjoy, you know... The, 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 the literally performing music in a, in a group of people. Mm -hmm. 
that that's something that that I want to do this this time around as well. It's kind of different having Julian and Dino in the band because it feel it's almost like I don't want to say it is, but it's almost like you're doing it for the first time because mm-hmm. you kind of like as a new well, it is entity. For them, yeah, it is yeah, for them, and that yeah. kind of, it's kind of like well, this is you know that if they're excited by this thing, and you kind mm-hmm. of like well, yeah, shit, this is really exciting, you know. Yeah. It's good. I, I I think since that time as well, um, I've learned to become a bit more focused. I, uh, when when we spoke at that time, it's like, what? You want me to write a column about food? Sure, I'm going to do that. And, right. and, and so... You, you spent a certain number of years with waiting for people to ask you to do things. Ex- You're exactly, going to say yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, while it was great to do all that stuff, it's it's quite exhausting and quite distracting mm-hmm. from your main thing that you want to do. So now I, th- I think I really have learned to sort of focus and like sort of keep my main thing. And I, I, I like sort of to go away and do other things, but maybe more related to music as well. Like I, I, I like... Uh, production. I'm going to do some recording uh, when I get back after this trip to Scotland. And but I don't think uh, I'll be writing any more food columns. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be making more albums. Yeah, I hope um, so too. Yeah. The newest one, which I think is excellent, always ascending, is out February 9th, 2018. I hope we get a chance to talk again before 13 more years have elapsed. At which point, <laughs> because then I think Alex will be 34. <laughs> And frankly, let me check the press release. Frankly, what will there be to talk about at that point? (laughs) Thanks, you. Thanks, you guys. Thanks Thanks. very much. Thank you. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Mack Weldon. With a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you are currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities so that they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, they're shipped right to your door, and if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. They will still refund you, no questions asked. Also, they make great t-shirts. Mack Weldon, you can grab all sorts of staples for your wardrobe there. I highly recommend it. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using promo code WATCH. And don't forget the shirts, dog. Today's episode of The Watch was also brought to you by Showtime's hit series Homeland. The show with its finger on the pulse has returned for a new season. Abuses of power, civil unrest, agents and double agents. Isolated from the White House and the CIA, Carrie Matheson finds herself with few resources and many disbelievers as she tries to prove that not all conspiracies are theories. Homeland has returned. Its new episodes air Sundays at 9. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial.